0: Chapter 5, verses 1 to 11, if you don't have your Bibles with you, of course, you'll find it up on the screen behind me. Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates we do not need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly, as labour pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness, so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. For those who sleep... ...sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate... ...and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as in fact you are doing. May God bless his word. Amen.
1: Hands up if you're a morning person. <clears throat> those who put the hands up of the morning people, those who didn't, couldn't be bothered yet because it's still too early. <laughs> the question is, do you wake up in the morning and say, good morning, Lord? Or do you wake up in the morning and say, good Lord, it's morning? <laughs> That'll answer your question, won't you, whether you're a morning person or not. With our kids, we have a 50-50 split. Taylor has always woken up with the birds, the first sign of any light, the first chirp of an early bird. And she's like, ping, I'm ready for the day. Regardless if anyone else in this house is ready for it or not, I'm ready to go." In recent times, she's found an ally in Lenny, Lenny's almost five years old, in fact five tomorrow, and he doesn't sleep that much at all, so he's pretty much always awake. And As soon as morning comes, Taylor and Lenny are just, it's like a switch has been flicked, and they're just ready to go for the day, there's joy and excitement and readiness for the day. Now, I did say that it's a 50-50 split, which means there's two others in the family who are the complete opposite. Adele and Annika are the complete opposite. They have to kind of defrost into the day. And so you got to get them out of the freezer and put them on the bench, waiting for them to thaw out before they're ready for the day. In fact, Annika, she sleeps with a blanket completely over her head like a cocoon. It's kind of awkward because there's no kids' church today, so all my kids are looking at me as I'm trying to preach, but she sleeps like a cocoon over the top. I don't know how she breathes in there, but the idea is that not a skerrick of light or noise will get in until Kim or I shake the bed and say, get out of bed for school, and you would think that from a cocoon would emerge a beautiful butterfly. (laughs) It's more like a grizzly bear being woken up early from hibernation, but that's what confronts Kim and I every morning as we wake up the kids and tell them to get ready for the day. Today, we're continuing a series. If you've been here for a while, you'll know the series is called Progress. And for those visiting, we're working our way through the letters of 1 and 2 Thessalonians. And the title of my message today is simply Wake Up and Get Ready. This is the message Paul was trying to convey to this young church in Thessalonica. And it's a message that's just as vital for us today. Because when I look at the church and basically the Western world church, I see a church that looks half asleep. A church that many people in our society think is boring and irrelevant and judgmental and ritualistic and boring and, and worst of all, dead. People look at the church and they think that it's dead. Certainly not a community that most people, even right here in the officer region, would ever think about or dream about becoming part of. And I think this is really where we have the opportunity uh, as a church because we're not dead. We're alive in Christ. Christ. And so we have an opportunity to show people that we're alive, to be people who love each other, people who love our community, and most of all, people who love our God with a passion, people who actually live what we say that we believe. We should be, I believe, the most enthusiastic people, the most passionate, the most hopeful, the most positive, the most loving people on the planet, because we have Jesus, right? Three people think, yes, we have Jesus, (laughs) And they're excited. I'm hoping the rest of you will be excited by the end of this message today. But we have Jesus, and yet so much of the time we live a ho hum, kind of going through the motions, kind of a faith, and we wonder why nobody's interested. You and I are walking billboards for Jesus, whether we like it or not. And as we go through life um, reflecting Him, if we do it accurately, man, we'll be interesting. We will be people who are attractive because people will look at us and they will see Christ, the Savior of the world, living in and through us. And so I think that God wants to wake us up and shake us up out of our apathy and into new life in Him. That's a good name for a church, new life. So often we seem to have a passion for our pursuits, but we have an apathy for the Lord. Let me say that again. So often we seem to have a passion for our pursuits, but we have an apathy for our Lord. Our eyes eyes light up when we talk about footy. You talk all day about it. When when Jared talks about knitting, I mean, he can tell you about cross-stitch all day. He just loves knitting. And and we all have hobbies, and that was a joke, but uh, we all have hobbies, we have things we love, and we're often passionate about those pursuits, but when it comes to the Lord Jesus Christ and our faith with him, it's kind of a bit like, yeah, whatever, yeah, I'll go to to church today. Yeah, yeah, all right, yeah, I'll go. It's not raining, so I should go. Perhaps God wants to wake us up this morning. Wake us up to the life that we have in him. Wake us up to the possibilities that await us now as we share the gospel with people that don't know Jesus and wake us up to the realities of the eternal promises that we have in Christ. You probably remember that the church that Paul is writing to at Thessalonica is a healthy church. It's a young church, but it's a healthy church. And Paul spends the majority of this letter commending these young Christians for their faith. You might remember all the way to the first message back in chapter one, uh, verse three. He says, we remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. These are people of faith, hope, and love. In other words, they aren't just growing in knowledge, but they're actually living out their faith in real, practical, tangible ways, even in the midst of the pressure and persecution from the culture that they were immersed in. And so Paul is like their cheer squad. He's encouraging them. He's urging them on. He says, you guys are doing great. And he's basically saying, I want you to keep progressing in your faith. But I remember back to chapter 3, and there was one particular verse in that chapter that caught my attention. You remember that Paul was writing this letter from Rome And he sent Timothy to visit these people, and he sent this letter with Timothy. And he says this uh, in the third chapter. He says, Night and day we pray most earnestly that we may see you again. And then he says, And supply what is lacking in your faith. As I said a moment ago, their faith seemed to be really healthy. And so the question becomes, What was lacking for these young Christians? And as I look at the text and as I read some of the scholars, I think the pivotal thing lacking in their faith, was a real assurance that they were definitely saved. I think many Christians, perhaps all of us at times, have those moments where we have doubts and fears, and we wrestle with different questions in our faith, and I think one that comes up over and over again is, am I really saved? Am I really in relationship with Christ? I think this young church was wrestling with those very same doubts, and it seems like they were concerned about what was going to happen to them when Jesus returns. Now, today I want you to do an activity with me. I want you to pretend that you've got a piece of paper in front of you today and a big black texter. And your piece of paper and your big black texter. I want you to do a vertical line right down the middle of the page. And then I want you to do a horizontal line up the top of the page, and what you'll see now on your piece of paper is a, a piece of paper with two columns on it. And at the top of the first column on the left-hand side, I want you to write the word guilty. And on the right-hand side, I want you to write the heading not guilty. Now, there's likely to be many people, in fact, I know there are many people in this church that are great people. And I'm looking at many of them today. You're great people, you've been generous, you've supported charities, you have volunteered your time, you've helped the old lady across the road, you've raised a beautiful family, you've got good morals and values, you're a person of integrity and honesty, you care about others. And if you're a great person today, and there's many of them in this room this morning, I want to say good for you. And I want to encourage you to keep walking down that road, because I think Jesus would want us to be those kinds of people. But I also want to eyeball each of you today and clearly tell you that none of that good stuff you do in your life can shift you from the not guilty column to the, sorry, from the guilty column to the not guilty column. None of that stuff will shift you in, in, in order of the column that you find yourself in. The Bible clearly teaches that all have sinned. And all fall short of the glory of God. In other words, God is perfect in every way. And no matter how good we are, we always fall short of God's perfect standard. And so while we might have piled up a whole lot of good stuff in our lives, the truth is that we've piled up an equally as big, maybe even bigger pile, of not so good stuff. All of us have, at different times, lied, or you might call it fibbing. All of us have stolen, uh, lusted in our hearts. We've hurt people we've sinned, all of us have disobeyed God at different times in our life. And so when Jesus returns, each of us will stand before him on judgment day and we'll be held to account for every detail and every circumstance of our lives. And if we were being judged simply by what we had done, our deeds, whether we're Mother Teresa or Adolf Hitler or you or me, we will all find ourselves on the guilty side Of the column and the verdict will be handed down we are guilty that's the bad news there is nothing that we can do in and of ourselves to shift from the not guilty the guilty column to the not guilty column there's nothing we can do the only way we can shift is the cross that separates those two columns on that piece of paper the only way we can shift from guilty to not guilty is the cross of Jesus Christ because Jesus on the cross took all of our sin upon himself, all of the lying, all of the guilt, all of the shame, all of the brokenness, all of the disobedience. Jesus took it upon himself at the cross and he said, I am willing to die for the sins of the world. I will die in your place and all you need to do is put your faith in me. That's the glorious news of the gospel, that if we put our faith in Jesus, all of the sin, all of the stuff that separates us from a holy and perfect God, is removed from our lives, and it's placed on Jesus, who stretches out His hands and He says, "It's finished, it's finished." For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him won't perish but will have eternal life. Jesus says, "I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one shifts columns." No one comes into relationship with the Father except through me. The only way we can shift is the cross that separates both sides. The only hope for humankind, for you and me, is Jesus Christ. The only thing that will shift you from guilty to innocent, from punishment for your sin to forgiveness of it, from separation to acceptance, from darkness to, To light, from death to life, the only thing that will shift you is the work of Christ at the cross and putting your faith in him. So I want to ask you the question this morning, on that day when Christ returns, what column will you end up on that day? Because it's defined by that cross. Will you be guilty or will you be not guilty? The real question is, have you put your faith in Jesus? Because it's the only thing on that day that will cause you to be righteous in the eyes of God the Father. This is a question that this young church at Thessalonica was wrestling with. They were passionate about Jesus. They were living their lives for him, but they lacked an assurance, an assurance of their salvation. The one area of their theology that seemed to be underdeveloped was their eschatology. Eschatology is the branch of theology that's concerned with the end times, the final events in the history of the world or mankind. These new Christians were passionate about Christ, but deep down, they seemed to be a bit unsure about their salvation and what the future held for them when Jesus returned. They were immersed in Greek culture that had absolutely no hope after death. As Ray pointed out last week, many of their tombstones had the words, no hope, written on them. Can you imagine that in a few years when you visit my tombstone? And it'll say, Luke Williams, born the 2nd of the 3rd, 1979, died in the year 2173 at the ripe old age of 194. And can you imagine, after that long and fruitful and faithful life, if it just said, no hope in capital letters? Now, that'd be kind of depressing, isn't it? I don't reckon any of you would even visit the tombstone. Now, there'd be no hope. Now, this is the, the culture that they were immersed in, a culture that had no hope for life after death. In the Old Testament, the prophet Joel referred to the day of Christ's coming as the great and dreadful day of the Lord. The great and dreadful day of the Lord. It seems as though perhaps this young church feared that day. And in some ways we should. Joel is right. That day will be the greatest day, the most magnificent, the most joyful day when Christ returns. But that very same day will be the most dreadful heartbreaking, tragic day in human history, depending on which side of the column you find yourself on, depending on whether you've put your faith in Christ or you've decided to take that punishment yourself. You can imagine these young and in some ways immature Christians were a little concerned about what may happen to them. And their solution was simple. They thought, well, you need to find out the exact time of Jesus' return. They thought, if we could just nail it down, If we could just even get it into a window of time, we know that Jesus is coming, we can somehow get ready for it. We can prepare ourselves for it. Now, clearly that wasn't the solution, but it's the same mistake that many people make today. Just a couple of weeks ago, I received an email from a guy whose wedding I conducted many years ago. hadn't heard from him since, but he sent me an email a couple of weeks ago with the latest theory on when the world would end. And so he sent an email to me and also an open letter to Follow Baptist Church. So here it is. I'm telling you now. Uh, It's a little bit late because according to apparent biblical calculations and the aligning of the planets, there was no doubt that September the 23rd, 2017, was going to be the last day of Earth, the day when Jesus returns. Does anyone know whether it happened? Pretty sure it didn't. We're still here. Uh, It didn't happen. Now, of course, these predictions have been happening for many years. Many people have made similar claims. But the reason that this guy took the effort to send me an email, to find my email address and send it to me, is because he wanted us to be ready, and he wanted us to go and tell everyone else to prepare for that day. Now, as soon as I got the email, I thought, that just can't be right. September 23rd, uh, I mean, surely Jesus wouldn't come back until after the grand final. And (laughs) richmond He's got a sense of humor, but he's not cruel. And, And Richmond supporters have been waiting decades to be in a grand final. Wayne's pretty happy about that. And can you imagine if you finally got to a grand final and then Jesus came back? It would be amazing, but it would be kind of sad as well. And uh, he's got a sense of humor, but he's not cruel. And so for all the Richmond supporters, the good news is Jesus is still coming back, but you got to witness your premiership, which is really wonderful for you. The news is not so good for St. Kilda supporters, unfortunately. Jesus will definitely come back before we win a flag. In all seriousness, I just had to get the St. Kilda joke in every week. Um, In all seriousness... The reason I didn't take much notice of that email is because Jesus himself told us that not even he knows the exact day or hour. In Mark chapter 13, he says about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, not even the Son, but only the Father. In Acts chapter 1 verse 7, when the apostles were pressing him about when's the kingdom of God going to be established, when are you going to bring this all to a glorious close, he also says to them, it's not for you to know the times or dates, the Father has set by his own authority. How arrogant is it for us to think that we can use a few calculations and study a few planets and work out exactly when Jesus is coming if not even Jesus himself knows, the one who created it all. It's kind of a futile exercise. But we need to be ready. The apostles had asked about dates and times, and now the Thessalonians were wanting to know as well. But Paul makes it clear in verse 1 of this chapter, what he's already told them previously, that nobody knows the day or hour. In verse 1, he says, Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. Their solution was to know the date, But none of us will know the day or the hour. It will be unexpected. We won't wake up that morning, get in our Sunday best, and think today is the day. Right? And We may know roughly the seasons, but we'll never know the day or the hour, and so it will be unexpected. And Paul uses two analogies in this passage to make that point abundantly clear. The first one is he says, when Jesus returns, it'll be like a thief in the night. I think he took this analogy straight from Jesus himself, who in Matthew 24 says the same thing. He says, therefore, keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready, because the Son of Man... Will come at an hour when you do not expect him. The thing about a thief is that they don't usually call and let you know when they're coming. They don't ring up and say, oh, is that Mr. Williams?" Uh, yes, it is. I'm not selling you anything because that's how a phone call always starts these days, which means I am going to sell you something. And, uh, I'm not selling you anything, but I just want to let you know that I'm coming to rob your house. Have you ever had a phone call like that? Are you busy 12 o'clock on Saturday? Uh, will the family be there? Well, that's fine, just help yourself, come on in, Uh, help yourself to all the stuff, Uh, knock knock, who's there, rob, rob who, the guy who's going to rob your house. It never really works that way, does it? Thieves don't tell us when they're coming, it's unexpected. When Jesus returns, he says he will come like a thief in the night. The second analogy Paul uses is one of labor pains. Now, it's sudden, and any mother will tell you, apart from epidural, it's unavoidable. Those pains will come. Husbands, here's a a bit of a word of warning for you. If you've never had a baby yet and you're thinking about having kids in the future, when those labour pains come and you're in the birthing suite, you better be ready. And you better get everything exactly right or watch out. In fact, that's bad advice. Ben Shrews, let me give you the real advice. Even if you get it 100% right, it'll still be wrong, so watch out. The only safe option is to do what my mate did He just fainted, (laughs) woke up when the whole thing was over. He's embarrassed, but he's alive. What Paul is saying is that on that day at Jesus' second coming, many people will be absolutely shocked. It will be absolutely unexpected, and it will be unavoidable. It will be too late for many people. If they haven't put their faith in Jesus, they will spend eternity separated from him. That's not his desire. His desire is that none should perish, but the reality is that many will. And that is tragic news. And that tragic fact should drive us and our lives like nothing else. It should shape our motivations and our priorities, because the truth is, uh, amongst that number of people who will be completely shocked, it'll include people from our families, Husbands, wives, mums, dads, sons, daughters, it'll include workmates, people surrounding us in this community will, will end up making up that number and let me tell you, that should break our hearts, should break our hearts and for us as Christians, saved by the incredible grace of Jesus Christ, that should drive us to our knees in desperate prayer, that should birth a desire in our hearts to share the good news with everyone we possibly can. This young church was anxious about that day. Their solution wasn't to know exactly when it would happen, when it would occur. So Paul now outlays what the solution actually is, and it's twofold. The first solution is that we should make sure that we stay awake, that we wake up. In verse 4, it says, But you, brothers and sisters, those who are in Christ, are not in darkness, that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness, so then let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. When a thief comes to rob your house, most often it happens at night. In the darkness, a thief comes, and usually when we're asleep, and we often even don't realize they've come until the TV's missing in the morning, it comes as a complete shock And yet we know it's a possibility, and so most of us prepare ourselves for when it could potentially happen. We're alert to the possibility. You might remember the the movie, a classic movie called Home Alone. Remember that movie? Yes. (laughs) He he woke up. He remembers it. That's awesome. The kids, kids will remember Home Alone. I love that movie. But you remember the story, a family, they head off overseas and they accidentally leave their young son, Kevin, at home. And while they're gone in the holiday season, there's these two imbecile thieves, and they're trying to break in and rob all the houses in the neighborhood. And so they've broken into quite a few, but Kevin's house is like the big prize jewel, and they want to get into this house because it's loaded with stuff. And so they think Kevin's on holidays with the rest of the family, and one night, one day, Kevin hears them during the day discussing what time at night they're going to come back and rob his house. And so he prepares himself. He makes sure that he gets ready for it and he sets up all sorts of pretty awesome booby traps in the house. And so they end up getting smashed in the face with an iron and they get their hair burnt off with a blowtorch and they get shot in the face with a BB gun and all sorts of stuff. And it's really quite a a house of horrors that he sets up for them. And and the, the thing is that he's ready. He's prepared for when the enemy comes. That's why at night we don't leave the front door wide open, do we? We don't do that. We lock the doors, we check the windows, we shut the blinds, we turn the lights off. Some people have security cameras and alarm systems because we want to stay alert. We want to be ready for when a thief might come and rob our house. And this is what Paul is saying. He's saying if you want to be ready for that day when Christ returns, stay awake, be alert. Because this is what it will be like when Jesus returns. It will be unexpected, but for us in Christ it shouldn't be a surprise. For many people, it will be a complete surprise. They'll be shocked on that day. Why? Because spiritually speaking, they're asleep. They're unaware that Jesus is coming back. Maybe they don't even believe it. Unfortunately, as I said before, it appears like half the church is asleep as well. Have you ever seen one of those really bad zombie movies, like Shaun of the Dead or something, and the zombies walk around like, uh, they make all these noises, and then if you get too close, they'll eat you. But otherwise, they just... Uh, they look awake, but they're actually presenting like they're asleep. And it feels to me like there's a lot of Christians like that. Uh, they sort of look alive, but then really they're asleep. They... Uh, just go through life, and I come to church. Uh, listen to a message. And, uh, and then I'll come back next week, and I'll do it again. Another message, and... Uh, it just seems like they look alive, but they're spiritually not awake. And how do I know that? Because there's no gospel pulse. There's no passion for Jesus. There's no willingness to share the good news. It's just apathy. They don't talk about Jesus. They're not get excited about new life in him, and they live like he's not even coming back. We as Christians should live like he died yesterday, like he ascended today, and like he's coming back tomorrow. We should be awake and ready. Paul was saying to these people, if you want to be ready for Christ's return, wake up, wake up, wake up, wake up, wake up. Get ready. You're not in the darkness. You're in the light. You know what I've noticed? It's really hard to sleep in the light, isn't it? You know, no one in their right mind says, I'm going to have a snooze. Let me open the blinds and turn all the lights on. You shut the blinds. You turn the lights off. You want to sleep. And it's best that you sleep in the darkness. Our family's just come back from a week away at Timeshare in Rosebud. We've been going there since I was about 15, so about 10 years now. And uh, what are you laughing about? And uh, at the Timeshare place, the, the curtains are there, but they have a big gap between the curtains and the wall. And so in the morning, the light floods in. Now when we're at Timeshare, we go with the whole family, so we have Lenny in our room. So you can imagine when the light floods in, what happens? No more sleeping. Lenny's just like, whee, ready we go. And then Taylor's up as well, and they want to go to the pool and play tennis, and I just want to sleep. And so the first thing that happens when we get the timeshare every year is that Kim goes and gets a whole bunch of extra sheets, and she shoves them up the top behind the blinds. So there's no chance of light coming in. I'm sure the timeshare people wonder what on earth we're doing with all those extra sheets, uh, but she just shoves them up there so no light comes in at all in the morning. Spiritually speaking, the vast majority of the world lives with the sheets shoved in. But as Christians, we've had the sheets pulled out. And we're living in the light because we're no longer people of darkness. We're people of light. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6 says, God, who first ordered light to shine in the darkness, has flooded our hearts with light. What a wonderful thing. You're not asleep in Christ. You're awake and so live that way. Paul says, if you want to be prepared for Jesus' return, be awake. Will Jesus return in the nighttime or the daytime? Well, the answer is both. For unbelievers, who'll come in the night when they are asleep spiritually, they'll be completely surprised. But for us in Christ, it'll be in the daytime because we're people of the light and we're spiritually awake. And so solution number one to be ready for Jesus is to be awake. Solution number two is to be ready. Wake up and get ready. For that day. Verse 8, but since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate, and the hope of salvation as a helmet. You'll see those words are there again, faith, hope, and love. He's saying to this young church, if you want to be ready for Jesus' return, keep doing what you're doing. Be people of faith, hope, and love. You'll notice that there's a putting on of these attributes. This is a biblical theme in the New Testament. There's other parts like Colossians 3 that talk about putting on the clothes. Clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them together in perfect unity. There's this idea of putting on stuff. Physically, we get dressed at the start of the day, don't we? There's this old saying, if you're a nervous public speaker that you should imagine your audience being naked. I'm feeling really nervous today. I'm not feeling nervous at all. And I never have to that point, just to know I don't think it would help me with my preaching at all. I also really appreciate that you've taken the time to get dressed today. Before you've come to church, you've come prepared. And that makes this job a lot easier. So I thank you for that. But the analogy in this passage is even stronger than just dressing ourselves. The analogy is about putting on armour for a real spiritual battle that we find ourselves in every day. It really links well to Ephesians chapter 6, where the Apostle Paul says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God, so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world And against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms, therefore put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you have done everything, you will stand. If these people were going to stand in the battle so that they prepared for Jesus' return, if they're going to continue to persevere when it gets tough, when they're going to endure persecution, if they're going to stay standing, they need to put on the spiritual armor of faith, hope, and love. Clothes don't put themselves on. You know that this morning. and armour doesn't put itself on either. We need to deliberately and proactively put on the armour every day. He says, first of all, put on the breastplate of faith and love. Now, think of a breastplate. What does it cover? What does it protect? Not a trick question. Heart. Heart. Body, heart. It protects... Our heart. Hearts are so important because they pump blood to the rest of the body. And so, a breastplate's incredibly important. Most of you would know that Kim, my wife, a year and a half ago, had her second open heart surgery. And before she went into the operation, she wrote goodbye letters to the kids and I. Why? Because the heart is fragile, and heart surgery is delicate. You might remember on the 4th of September, 2006, I was up on a scaffold working as a carpenter. And I remember a news report coming on the radio that sent shockwaves throughout the whole of Australia and right throughout the world. Steve Irwin, the crocodile hunter, had died. He was an Australian icon, a bit of a legend in Australia, a pretty ocker kind of Aussie. He was big, he was strong, he was brave. He used to wrestle crocodiles with his bare hands. And in many ways, you'd look at Steve Irwin and you think, man, that guy's indestructible. And yet... In a freak accident, the barb of a stingray, all it had to do was pierce his heart, and he was dead instantly. The heart is delicate. Hearts are delicate. We have a real enemy who wants to pierce our hearts. He wants to get in there, and he wants to get into our hearts, because he knows if he can get to our hearts, he can kill our spiritual lives. How often do you talk to people, and they say, I used to go to church, and then when you ask what happened... They say, oh, yeah, someone hurt me or someone said the wrong thing or did the wrong thing. I've been let down. And what really happened is this, that they allowed the devil, in that circumstance, no matter how bad that may have been, to get through the armor and to pierce their heart. I've said it before, it's a tragedy that many of those people no longer work with the Lord because of an the experience they had at church. And I've said this before, and it's worth saying again, if you're in this community and you have never been offended Make the most of it, because it's coming. I'll tell you why. Because you're surrounded by a group of people who are forgiven, but they're far from perfect. And so often we come into a church community and we see it as different to a footy club or, or you know, whatever, a social club or whatever, but it's similar in this regard. Uh, it's a bunch of imperfect people. And yet we come into a church like this with imperfect people and we expect perfection. And when we don't get perfection, we're hurt and we're let down. We walk away from the whole thing and the devil gets in and he pierces our hearts. Do we deliberately hurt each other? Absolutely not. We want to love each other. We want to serve each other. We want to care for each other. that is so important. But there will be times in our human nature that we fall short of what we're trying to do. And people will get hurt. And it's so important in those times that we put on the breastplate of faith and love because the devil knows if he can get to our hearts, he can stop our spiritual lives and our hearts grow hard with anger and bitterness and unforgiveness. And it can easily happen to any of us. So put on every day, deliberately make the choice to put on the breastplate of faith and love, faith that God is working all things together for good for those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. Put on the breastplate of love, a love for God, as you accept his incredible undeserved grace in your life, and you realize that that undeserved love you've received is to now give to others who also don't deserve it. That's what the gospel is. It's easy to know it. It's a lot more difficult to live it. So we need to put on the breastplate of faith and love. It won't happen easily, so ask the Holy Spirit to fill you every day with the love of Christ. Because Proverbs 10.23 It says, above all else, above all else, guard your heart, for everything else flows from it. Put on the breastplate, put on the hope of salvation as a helmet. If the devil can't get you here, he'll get you here. That's how he works. He goes for the head or the heart. Paul was saying, if you want to be ready for Jesus' return, if you want to persevere to that day, guard your heart and protect your head. You A helmet protects you when you get knocked around the head. Remember, years ago, I grew up in Cheltenham, and there was a street called Silver Street and we used to love it because it had a hill which was about that steep and we used to have a speeder on our bike and we'd race down the hill to see who could get the fastest going down the hill. I remember one day when I was young, I was on my BMX and I just started down the hill and something inconvenient happened, my front wheel fell off and you can imagine going down a hill like that and a front wheel falls off, it's just like... And I remember hitting the ground really hard and I grazed my elbows and I grazed my knees and I smacked my head into the concrete. And I was pretty sore and sorry, but I was okay because my head was protected by a helmet. A couple of years later, I was fielding in a cricket field and the batsman skied a big one out into the outfield and I was out in the outfield and I could get to this catch and so I I was running and yelling, mine, 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 mine. And my teammate was running, but he wasn't yelling and we ran and we just went bang and he knocked me out cold pretty embarrassing, isn't it, getting knocked out on a cricket field? But I did. I was knocked out cold. The bike accident was much worse. I didn't get knocked out. The fielding incident was much less, but I was knocked out cold. What was the difference? The difference was a helmet. You see a boxer getting constant blows to their head throughout their career, and there's only a certain amount of time you can put up with that until you eventually get knocked out. Muhammad Ali, the greatest boxer of all time, you look at him now and you, you see what happened. The long-term effect of what happened to his brain from boxing is blow after blow after blow after blow landed on his head. It had an impact. We live in a culture where, as Christians, it's not popular to be a Christian. We are going to cop criticism, rejection, and ridicule. There will be doubts and fears that come into our mind, and if we don't protect our heads, we'll get knocked out. We'll get knocked around the head over and over again, and so Paul says, put on the helmet." put on the helmet of salvation. In other words, remind yourself from God's word what Christ has done for you. And he finishes by saying that in verse 9. He said, remind yourself of this, that God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us, so that whether we're awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up just as as you are doing. That's why we're here today. We're here to worship Jesus. We're here to encourage and to build one another up. And so I want to tell you today, church, Jesus is coming back. He's coming back. He's coming back for his people. It's exciting. It's wonderful. Pete's excited. Dad's excited. The rest of you are going to be excited sometime soon. But it's wonderful that Jesus is coming back. We have an incredible future in Christ laid out through the promises of God in his word to us. And so every day we've got to remind ourselves of the promises of God in his word that you and I are saved in Christ. We're not in the darkness. We're in the light. We're not dead. We're alive. We're not asleep. We're awake. And it's all because of what Christ has done for us. And so how do we prepare ourselves for that day when Jesus returns? When we wake up, we get ready. by putting on the breastplate of faith and love and the helmet of salvation. Let's bow our heads and we're going to pray. Lord God, we are just absolutely in awe of you. Lord, we are so grateful, so joyful for all that you've done for us, that on the cross you died in our place. It's wonderful. Lord, we deserve punishment for the things we've done wrong but you in your graciousness and your kindness and your grace said I will take that punishment for you and all we need to do now is put our faith in you and we have the guarantee that you're with us every day we have the guarantee of eternal life that we will be forgiven and we'll be declared righteous on that day when we stand before Christ that is a magnificent thing Lord I pray that you help us to persevere We know we're in a culture that's getting more and more difficult to be a Christian. But Lord, you've given us everything we need to stand firm. And so I pray that we would make a decision every day to actively put on the spiritual armor, that we would not allow the devil to pierce our hearts. We'd not allow the devil to get into our heads, but we would stand on your word. We would stand in the power of the Holy Spirit, and we would say, we are saved and forgiven in you, and there's nothing the devil can do about it. Lord, I pray that we would be people of faith that no matter what, we would have boldness to stand. Lord, I want to pray for everyone in this room today. I want to pray for those that are already saved. I want to say thank you for the miracle you've done in their hearts. There's so many miracles in this room. You have opened their eyes. You've removed the spiritual blindness. You've helped them to come to know you. But Lord, I believe there's people in this room that maybe haven't come to know you yet. And so I want to pray for them right now as well, that you would work in their hearts, that you would open their eyes to who you are, that you are a good and gracious God who loves them so much that you gave your only son to die for them. Lord, I pray that you would do the work in the hearts of people here today. I can say words, I can talk about your word, but only you can do the miracle. And so I pray that you would do something in people's hearts. And I want to give an opportunity right now, if there's anyone here that you haven't given your life to Christ, if you haven't accepted what he did for you at the cross, you don't have that assurance of salvation like this young church was struggling with. I want to give you an opportunity today to put your faith in Christ. And so while no one's looking around today, where every eye is closed and every head is bowed, if you say, Luke, I don't know everything right now, but I I believe that God's doing something in my heart right now. And I want to accept Christ as my Lord and Savior," I want to encourage you just to be bold and to be brave and just to put your hand up and say, Luke, that's me. I want to know. That when Christ comes and I stand before him, I'm not going to be in the guilty column. I'm going to be in the not guilty column because of the cross. Is there anyone here this morning? Is at that point you say, yep, I want to put my faith in Jesus? Lord, I pray uh, if there's anyone here that doesn't know Jesus, that you continue to work in their heart. I thank you for your word that encourages and inspires us. And as we finish this service praising you, Lord, I pray that we do it with gratitude in our hearts for all that you've done for us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.